Hey everyone, you're listening to Upset Patterns. I'm your host, Will Compernal. Today's episode features the excellent Connor Doherty of the New York Times. He recently wrote a book about the housing affordability crisis in California called Golden Gates. We'll be giving out a few copies of the book to lucky listeners, so if you want a chance to get your own copy, keep an eye out during the episode for the TV show that Connor uses to compare city council meetings to, and then email upsetpatterns at gmail.com. So if you want a chance to get his book Golden Gates, email upsetpatterns at gmail.com with the name of the TV show mentioned as the special code. All right, back to the podcast. So this is a national story about a housing affordability crisis everywhere in the country. But California, like so many things, is the worst version of it. And it is the sort of edge of the American experience, literally and figuratively. There's long been this frame. It's a little cliched, but I do think it's true that California is a look at the nation's future. This has generally, uh, for for most of post-World War II history, been a optimistic vision. It was the vision of uh, people living in spacious homes and with backyards and uh, doing more intellectual jobs and new industries like computers and all these kind of new, uh, new, new, new industries, new jobs, and a very comfortable, affluent way of life. But now California, California's status as a look at the nation's future is this dark, <laughs> scary, inequitable uh, vision that's Again, it's not to say that that's truly unique. Connor Doherty's recent book, Golden Gates, looks at the inner workings of the housing crisis in California. About a quarter of California households spend more than half their income on rent. Recently, the Bay Area specifically has created eight new jobs for every housing unit, meaning that those looking to participate in the Bay Area economy need to live further and further away. One study estimates California would need to build three and a half million homes to even start making a dent in its housing crisis. The last decade, the state has only built around 80,000 new homes every year. About four million Californians spend at least three hours commuting to and from work every day. California has found itself in the odd situation of having some of the most innovative companies in human history, as well as the highest state poverty rate in the country, when you factor in the cost of housing. We have million evictions a year. Uh, if you look at the, the home ownership rate amongst young adults, it's at like a multi-decade low. So whether you're talking about middle-class people, uh, whether you're talking about the absolute poorest people who don't even have a home, whether you're talking about the working poor, the issue of housing security is one of these things about America that's getting worse, not better. The book follows a number of people who are right in the middle of this housing crisis. You've got activists both in favor and against more housing, politicians passionately convinced of different solutions, and of course, you have the people who are struggling to find a way to live in California. So in the book, there is this uh, family, the Pinetas, and they are a uh, immigrant uh, Latino family from Mexico, and they um, they are... Uh, in a, they live in a house in Redwood City, and it's where the kids grew up. Um, there's three, there's, there's, there's uh, three brothers and a sister, uh, but I really focus on the three brothers. Um, and they, um, the, Cesar, Jesus, and Ismael, 
they, their landlord came to them and said, you know, we're, I'm going to renovate the house, so you have to leave. Um, this is a common way people move tenants out um, when they want to kind of uh, get higher rents for the building. So they uh, move out and, you know, obviously rent is so much in the Bay Area, they have to go to East Palo Alto where they crowd into this house that already has, uh, you know, I think five people living in it. So there's now 10 people living in this house. Um, The brothers share one room where they got, you know, three bunk beds stacked up. Um, uh, The parents uh, are next door in in, in, in the next room. Um, I think their sister was nearby in a garage somewhere. So they're, they're trying to stay together. They didn't really like living in someone else's house, you know, um, even though their landlord was super cool, he lived in the building with them or in the house with them. But it was just, it's just weird living in someone else's house. It's like, you know, a permanent, you know, B and B. Um, and it's just like not fun. And so they, they, they tried to like not stay home that much. They started taking showers at the gym because it just felt more comfortable they really just wanted to find their own space. But then another one of the characters is this 15-year-old girl, Stephanie Gutierrez. And she is um, uh, you know, a high school student in Redwood City, uh, lives in a, a poor part of the Silicon Valley, one of the few remaining ones. Her mom is, uh, cleans houses and does elder care, um, is an immigrant. And um, Stephanie uh, comes home one day and finds an $800 rent increase attached to, taped to her two-bedroom apartment door and this is in a you know kind of a uh a proverbial low-rent building with kind of no kind of a no real backyard apartments have you know thin doors and you know this sort of thing and um so she takes it upon herself at 15 years old to organize this apartment complex has this whole journey where she starts organizing these other apartment complexes and ultimately kind of clashes with their landlord to try to get uh, a, a, a to, to, to protest this, you know, crushing $800 rent increase. But ultimately they get a, a buyout deal, which is a very common way tenant disputes are, um, are, are solved, which is that the landlord basically says to them, Hey, if you guys uh, are quiet, um, and quit protesting me, I'll give you 500 bucks, 3000 bucks, whatever the amount is. In their case, they got 1500 bucks or a month's rent. Um, to to basically just move out early. The struggle to find affordable housing for the Panetta family and Stephanie's family are far from unusual. Even people with high salaries at tech companies feel the rent squeeze. With those three-hour daily commutes, it's worth considering why people will do so much to live near these cities. The reality is that cities are hubs for innovation, and even with video conferencing and the internet making communication so easy, there's something about physical proximity that still pays a premium for companies and individuals. Places get good at things. Detroit is good at cars. Uh, the Silicon Valley is good at technology. Texas uh, is good at oil and also technology in Austin. Um, you know, there are all sorts of little micro... Minneapolis is kind of the nation's leader in medical devices. Uh, there are all sorts of... Uh, yeah, Los Angeles is the center of entertainment. And... These places, and, and there are subversions of this, but, but, you know, Nashville has country music, right? And all these places get good at these things for really subtle reasons. You know, you look at the Bay Area, which is the place I know best, there's no reason why technology has to be there. But when you look at how it came there, it's this long, long, long history. 
And uh, so, you know, it begins with universities, um, military spending uh, in the in the war run up period. Then you had companies like Fairchild Semiconductor, uh, which uh, began there after the um, transistor was uh, discovered in Bell Labs in New York. Uh, that led to companies like Intel. And you know, they, people do these family trees where you can see sort of that the entire Silicon Valley is in some way uh, can be traced back to those early companies, Fairchild in particular. Um, and so, so what that creates is an economy where every the whole economy has sort of grown up around this industry and it has created the little bits and pieces that make that industry go. I think that when you see an industry in a place it's a really cultural, it's a, it's a cultural and economic thing that is as invisible as it is visible. And I think the proof of that is look at like a company, companies like Google and Facebook, the most expensive thing they could do, the most expensive and difficult thing they do, they could do is to continue expanding where they already are. And what do they do? They spend all this money uh, trying to get office space, raising their salaries to compensate for the cost of housing, just to keep expanding where they already are. And and when they do expand other places, those places look exactly like them. Facebook's biggest office, I'm sorry, they look exactly, when they do expand other places, those places look exactly like their hometown. This value of being near a city isn't just for the software developers or other white collar workers in high paid industries. The cities create massive opportunities all the way down the income ladder. Opportunities that make people like the Panetta family and Stephanie Gutierrez's family do whatever they can to live nearby. But all these people that want access to California need a place to live. The shortage of available housing is driving the price up. Now, the amount of land is basically fixed in place by nature. Is there a way to give more people access to this land that is so productive? Luckily, there's some incredible technology available to us that does just that. The time-tested inventions known as elevators and stairs allow for huge amounts of people to access the same workspaces without causing sprawl. It's really cool. So, what's stopping us from just building lots of high-rise apartments? Well, it's not so easy, and you probably can think of a lot of good reasons you might be hesitant to accept a huge new building near your home. There's this term you might have heard, NIMBYism. That's N-I-M-B-Y, which stands for Not In My Backyard. NIMBYism is the idea that people will protect the status quo of their surroundings by discouraging development. The better reasons may be to preserve neighborhood charm, concern about environmental impact, or to stop traffic congestion. The less warm and fuzzy reasons are things like keeping certain people out, a fear of any change, and protecting property values. Now, it's hard to talk about nimbyism without talking about home ownership in America. Deeply ingrained in the concept of the American dream and, quote, making it, means owning your own home. That's been the case for a while, but there's a history starting the 1970s that really accelerated things. There was a huge inflationary period in the 70s, and housing had a very inter interesting uh, role in that inflation, which is that since you buy your mortgages, most people have a 30-year fixed mortgage, so their mortgage payments are set. And uh, since your mortgage payment is set, and since you can deduct the interest uh, on your loan, housing almost acts as a hedge on inflation. And on top of that, housing values started going up a lot. So people uh, who had homes in the 70s were kind of like protected from this inflation that was just like ravaging the economy everywhere else. And so that made them a lot more protective. Then over time, 
I think housing got more and more expensive for various reasons. And then, of course, what happens is young people, young, you know, young families have to stretch themselves more to get their first home. And then, of course, that makes them more protective because if the home value goes down, they're screwed. Right. So you kind of create. And so many of the most, you know, for all the talk about how old NIMBYs, the, the NIMBYs tend to be older, which is generally true. Many of the most like vicious NIMBYs I've met are kind of young people who just bought their home. Um, now, there aren't that many of them because like most young people can't afford homes, but they are the ones who have the largest stake because they have bought at like the absolute most, they have just like, broken themselves to buy at the highest possible level. Uh, and that um, makes them very protective. The end result of this is that the middle 60% of Americans have their savings basically tied up entirely in home equity. If your nest egg is the value of your home, you're going to do pretty much everything to make sure that price is protected. That means stopping building that disrupts the character of your neighborhood, making less housing available, and being pretty averse to the risk of things changing. Homeownership can make people think long-term and invest in their communities, but it also has these downsides. To people being displaced by the high-salary software engineers, it might look like rent control and stopping new development is the solution. But the characters in Golden Gates are all part of the same system. Making individual decisions, yes, but the book also shows how the big picture is so much more than this. After seeing the story of Stephanie Gutierrez's family and their eventual move, Connor returned to their old building. Uh, so then I went back to the, um, you know, apartment. Um, and of course, throughout the protest, people were saying, oh, it's Facebook people are going to come and they're going to gentrify everything. But who has moved in but the Pineda family? And that is one of the, you know, Ismael and his brothers. And I went to their house and they had... Uh, you know, the, the room where Stephanie, uh, Stephanie's brother had his own room and he had a, you know, his own bed and his uh, posters and his own space, which is, you know, um, uh, and, and, and there's the brothers, uh, two bunk beds and a third king bed in there. You could barely even walk in the room. There were so many beds stuffed into it, but the family was really just looking for their own space because they had that living room. Now they didn't have to feel like they were um, living in somebody else's house anymore. So even though they were so crowded in their bedrooms, the ability to have their own family space was just something they had really been searching for in their housing journey. And so I think when you, you know, read all these stories wrapped together and you see how, um, you know, two families with uh, both um, immigrant Mexican families, almost identical job profiles, the men did construction and, and the women did, um, some degree of uh, either elder care or, or child care uh, and cleaned houses, you can sort of see like, wow, this is, this is a lot more complicated uh, than we think it is. And people are um, people of all different kinds of levels are moving to places like the Bay area or other thriving cities to, to, to find work. Um, and some of these people are Google and Facebook people who make a lot of money, but a lot of them are also, you know, poor and typically immigrant families who are moving to find higher wages in service jobs. We've always celebrated being a beacon where people can go. But if they can't live anywhere when they get there, it's kind of not really anything to celebrate. So I think that when what I tried to do was just see where these stories took me. You know, it's not to say that gentrification isn't real. Obviously, there's a huge problem. But what about building the housing with rents not set at market prices? This may solve the problem for some people, but remember that the state needs to find a new place to live for three and a half million people. 
With the regulatory hoops and construction costs in California, statewide it costs about $425,000 per unit to build a 100-unit affordable housing project. The entire California budget is $200 billion. So even if you could spend every dollar in the state budget on building affordable housing, do the math, and you get 13.4% of the way to your goal. I just think that through these characters, you can see all of this and feel it and really appreciate how interconnected we are. Because, you know, when we're in our cars or we're going from our favorite restaurant to our apartment to our favorite park, you know, we don't really see the city and all its kind of glorious complexity. We don't go down every side street. We don't go into the low income. Some people who are in low income apartments, they don't go to, you know, billionaires' houses and see how they're thinking about, uh, you know, city planning. And billionaires generally don't go into poor people's houses to sort of hear how they're struggling with rent and no amount of, you know, planning is going to get him out of it. And, you know, it's just this book is just full of twists and turns where someone might be the hero one minute and you think you're totally on their side and you're really invested in their story. And then, bam, you know, you meet them in another part of the book and you go, oh, wait, what's what's happening here? I feel totally differently about this situation, about this person's role in this system. And I think what that illustrates, I think the reason I tried to do the book that way is that it it, it almost like illustrates complexity without making it feel like a complex read. You know, you, you walk away from this book just feeling like you don't know how you feel <laughs> uh, other than uncomfortable. And I think that, that maybe in a way this kind of captures the interconnectedness of it all, which is that, you know, you are sometimes, you know, your decisions have impact on other people in your local economy. Is the answer to just end all regulations and supply America awash with housing? Not exactly. Connor says that reporting for his book made him much more sympathetic to things like rent control and housing subsidies. There's no place in America where everyone can afford housing, so public support is needed to fill in the gaps. Rent control is, as almost any economist will tell you, not a silver bullet way to make housing affordable, and almost always makes things worse on its own. But it does provide beneficial security for some people. And most importantly, government policies everywhere are set up to guard people against risk for their residents. It's just that they're geared towards homeowners. $70 billion is spent in America every year allowing homeowners to deduct their mortgage interest payments from their taxes. This is compared to the $20 billion spent on Section 8 housing vouchers for low-income families. So why can't renters get some protection too? So I came into this book thinking of this as, as a very economics subject, you know, a, we have an undersupply of housing. We have to figure out how to supply it. And um, private market will play some role in this and the public market will play some role in this. And that's, that's, the, 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 that's that. And to some extent, that is where I come out, right? But along the way, you know, when I really started to kind of get to know people and see their perspectives and see how rough it is for people who are at the very bottom of the economic uh, scale, the mortgage interest, I'm sorry, the 30-year fixed mortgage is basically rent control for homeowners, right? And it's rent control that we go, we undergo tremendous government expense to uh, create. Meaning we, I mean, if you think of the 30-year fixed mortgage, it's like this giant invasion into free-floating credit markets, right? I mean, it's like, it's like taking the full force of the U.S. government and saying, like, how do we create a fake market for a security that nobody really wants? I mean, to some extent, right? That's like what we're doing. And 
Fannie and Freddie exist almost solely to create the 30-year fixed mortgage as a financial product. But, but, and, and that was seen as a way to stimulate the housing market, you know, a, a way to create a giant new market for mortgages and ultimately homes. A lot of political decisions that matter in America are done at the local level. Our politics today may be incredibly nationalized, but the things that really impact our day-to-day life, they're hashed out at local town hall meetings. These meetings are sometimes mundane, focusing on trash collection or the sidewalk sale next weekend. But Connor also saw that these meetings happening totally independent of each other had some striking similarities. And they're full of characters with strong opinions, reminiscent of a TV show you may have seen. I have no news to share, but a, uh, a Hollywood agent called me um, to talk about the book. And I, I, like I said, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily expect anyone to make a movie out of this, but it was, it was still just an interesting conversation. And in the course of the conversation, uh, she said to me, oh, this book feels like Parks and Rec, you know, the show Parks and Recreation. And I, I was so gratified. City council meetings, it just sounds like this really boring thing, but they're not boring. They're crazy. I mean, nobody... Nobody and that show captures it better than anyone. I mean, this is a this is a funny book. You know, people show up to city council meetings not sure. You know, they're a little intimidated at first. Um, you know, they they kind of there's microphones there. Everyone's looking at them. They 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 they're nervous. They've written some things down, but then they ignore it and just go on these monologues. It, it's just, there are these wild scenes. And then, of course, over time, people get good at it. And then you go to city council. I mean, the number of people who city, you know, if you took the number of people who speak at a city council meeting uh, any given evening, it's like the same people all the time. And they and they kind of have their, it's like a little small town gathering. It's it's like there's like, the, each one has their roles. One person's the crank. The other person's the optimist. Then there's the person who like wants to talk about the Palestinian conflict and everyone's like, oh, we don't do that here. Um, and, you know, wh- one of the things I also laughed about, I mean, it's just so funny to me, um, is how common uh, or how, how much common thought there is at these different meetings. Yes, city council meetings are all different and yes, they're hyper local, but you put them all together and they're much more significant than anything the federal government does. And, um, you know, our cops, our schools, our housing. I mean, these are the things these uh, bodies uh, figure out. It's not like they're making different decisions. You know, in common, they're making these decisions that have national consequences. And housing is kind of the same thing. You know, you go to any little city council and the land battles might seem insignificant, but you put them all together. And that is housing in America. That is land in America. That is, you know, this multi-trillion dollar uh, market is decided by these, you know, 100,000 city councils and sort of unpacking that in a way that I thought was, you know, engaging, you know, it helps you understand the weight of it, but also shows you how like zany and crazy and, um, and funny and, but also sad, uh, it can be. So I, I observed a meeting once where somebody wanted to put a, another story on a, on a building. And I don't know how the hell this happened, but somebody, sort of, I don't know, somebody kind of said that this would make it easier for a sniper to shoot kids in like a um, school nearby. And I, and it just sounds like a crazy thing, right? But then other people started like repeating it. And next thing you know, it's like this meeting has devolved into like people crying over like, 
why do you want the sniper to kill the children? I mean, it's like, you know, and these poor city council people have to sit up there and be like, well, I'm, I'm not exactly sure that's what's going to happen. And I've seen the sniper fight happen like, like more, like multiple times. Like the, this building is high. So a snipe, it doesn't happen like all the time. Right. But I mean, that has happened like more than once at city council meetings. Another thing I've heard a lot of times is renters pee on everything. That's uh, that's something I always hear people say, well, um, I don't want that, you know, new apartment near me because every, they're going to come home from the bar and they're going to pee uh, all over the, um, uh, all over the streets. And, and, but what's, what's funny isn't that that's what's, uh, said one time in one meeting. It's that's that's what's said like a lot. That's like what a lot of these meetings all around the country in all these different places sound like. And so and and even though, like I said, even though it's like really funny, you put that all together, and that is housing policy in America. That is shelter in America. If a developer proposes building a new apartment complex, think of the people that will show up at one of these town meetings and what their thoughts will be. You'll have the homeowners who want to protect the value of their homes, citizens who are averse to traffic congestion, and people concerned about the environmental impact of new building. The people in favor of new building are those greedy developers. But what about the people being hurt by a housing shortage? Well, in some sense, they're not even aware that they exist. And they don't really have a democratic voice since they're people that would live in the town but without residents don't have a say in how things go. People similar to the Panetta family who'd love to live nearby, but for now, maybe in a totally different state. Here's where the story of Sonia Trous comes in. You know, one of the characters is this woman, Sonia Trous, who is this wild, amazing activist who just like, you can't stop reading about her. She shows up to a Bay Area, you know, shows up to California from Philadelphia, has just dropped out of grad school, has, you know, kind of failed at everything in life. And then she just decides she's going to go down to the Board of Supervisors one day and um, says, oh, you guys have a housing shortage. And, you know, pretty much, you know, within a couple months, she becomes this, you know, political phenomenon. Uh, she starts calling her group the Bay Area Renters Federation or BARF. Uh, so then I go and I meet Sonia at a, uh, at a cafe one day. She drives up in a glittery orange Crown Victoria and has this, she's sort of known for wearing these fluorescent outfits. Uh, I was just like, what is this? And she talks, you know, she's kind of veers between these like pop philosophical monologues about how like, you know, the people don't like new housing because it reminds them they're going to die. Every time you see a new building, it, it tells you that a year has passed and you, it tells you you're a year old and you're going to die. Um, you know, when you go to a neighborhood and it looks totally different from how you remember it, it tells, that's, a, that's a message to you that you're so much older. Then she would say, you know, NIMBYs are, I mean, she called people... Uh, assholes. And, but one of the things she said to me that I thought, you know, our very first interview that I thought was so intriguing and so fundamentally true was that I was asking her about different policies and, you know, how she would even really start a movement. And of course, over the course of the book, you see how she does do that. She started suing suburbs using state law to try to force them to build housing. Um, her group ended up getting heavily involved in politics and ultimately pushing the candidacy of Scott Weiner, who went on to become this big guy in California politics and has pushed a couple of zoning bills that have gotten huge national attention. Housing isn't just expensive because of supply issue. Connor points to the nature of construction itself as a significant cause for higher prices. Houses now are built piecemeal by subcontractors upon subcontractors, nothing resembling an efficient assembly line. 
Putting parts together inside used to be a quicker and cheaper way to make housing. In fact, some of the earliest European settlers to America came over with their pre-made houses joining them on the boats. The productivity in construction is horrific, and it is one of the things that has not caught up. Today, uh, housing productivity is obviously hard to measure, but g- generally speaking, according to various studies, housing productivity, sorry, construction productivity today is like not that much better than it was in 1945. It's like roughly the same. Productivity has, in effect, declined for construction while it's, you know, gone berserk for computers and retail and all these other things. We are going to actually, you know, we're going to need to get our housing policy correct. We're also going to have to figure out how to make a house cheaper and really change how construction works. And so there is a chapter in this book about a guy who's trying to build housing on an assembly line. Uh, And so what they do is they, you know, through 22 steps, they take it from like literally just a plywood floor to a, 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 a building that you're walking, you know, a small apartment that you're walking around and everything besides the water works. Uh, and then that is shipped on a truck to a construction site and then they can build the building in a day. It takes them a several more months to actually like make it like work as a building, but they can take it from like a, you know, nothing to like the whole building stacked up um, in like a day. There, there are records of people using prefabricated housing going back 400 years. And it makes sense, right? Wouldn't you... Uh, if you were going to land on a beach somewhere, you, you you know, and you didn't know what was going to be there when you got there, um, and you weren't going to like, you know, it would you knew it would take you a couple of days to kind of get settled enough that you could go into the you know wilderness and start chopping trees down and really like settling a place. You would you would probably show up with the you know some version of a structure to kind of protect you. What's the current landscape for new laws relating to housing? SB 50 was a California state bill that would have made it so the areas near public transit and big job centers would be zoned for higher density residential development. California Governor Gavin Newsom has also made more housing a priority for his time in office. Last year in Minneapolis, the city rezoned much of the city to now allow for denser buildings than just single family homes. On, you know, in January, housing was the thing the California legislature had to work on this year. They had SB 50, it died. But um, SB 50 was the big zoning bill that would have upzoned, you know, pretty much the whole state, uh, at least the major metro areas and all the population centers. And that died. As soon as that died, Senator Tony Atkins, the president pro tem of the Senate, like literally a second later, walked up to her podium and said, "Okay, you guys need to figure this out because we're going to pass some kind of bill like this this year. So this one just died, but we're going to pass another we're going to do something like it this year. So you need to hash this out because this housing problem is crazy. Uh, Gavin Newsom only talked about housing in his state of the state speech. It's, the, it's pretty much housing and homelessness was the whole thing. So until coronavirus, housing was the first, second, and third issue of, of this state. And how that was going to turn out and what was going to really happen, uh, I don't know. Yep, coronavirus. States like California have understandably put almost everything on the back burner in order to support their residents and businesses that have been impacted by the pandemic. But even with some recent legislation falling short in California, success may be less about these bills. Connor points to the first meeting he had with Sonia, and her vision of success could really be the way forward in improving the housing crisis in California and across the country. And she said to me, well, you know, I I have thoughts about that, but really in the end, Um, What has to happen is we almost, I'm heavily paraphrasing because she does not talk like this, but uh, we almost need like a sociological victory 
you know, that people have to kind of believe that housing is good, not bad. And she said, so we're now in a place where if somebody goes to a city council meeting and there's a new project proposed and they show up and say, oh, it's going to ruin my view or the shadow will destroy my garden. Uh, that person is viewed as not just, you know, a sympathetic character, that they're almost like this like anti-capitalist kind of anti-developer, you know, good liberal force in the world, you know, and, uh, you know, a concerned citizen, you know, that the, the, the nothing, nothing, no suspicion can be um, cast on their motives. And um, she was sort of saying that, well, I actually think that person's being selfish. They're keeping housing out of their neighborhood. They're making it so the people who want to move here for work from a, from a more depressed economy can't. Um, and so I think that that, you know, and it's raising their property values, right? So that person I think of as fundamentally selfish. And she was sort of saying to me, what I really want to do is kind of change how we feel about that viewpoint at a meeting. I, I don't want someone who shows up to a meeting to complain about new housing to be viewed as virtuous and, uh, and, and innocent of any nefarious or commercial motive. I want them to be seen as, you know, a person who is uh, selfish and is, and is hoarding their housing wealth for themselves. And I, and, and she sort of said, like, you know, when people feel differently about that viewpoint, things will start to change. And they will change because people will start to have to ask themselves hard questions about where their kids are going to live if everything's too expensive. People will have to ask hard questions about, you know, what the real underlying cause of homelessness is. People who think they're worried about climate change are going to have to ask themselves if um, opposing housing near jobs is really just perpetuating, uh, is just increasing climate emissions by forcing people to drive further from work. And that and so what I, but, but that the, since these are largely block by block development by development battles, you would almost need to like change the social kind of the sociology of development for there to be any real change because no law is going to change. You can't pass a law that's broad enough to kind of prevent this kind of general uh, discontent for housing. And I think what's fascinating to me is under all the battle, so, so first off, I thought that was fundamentally correct. Um, I thought that was a really insightful comment she made and, and one that really recognized the kind of diffuse nature of this. Um, that there isn't going to be some magic bullet fix where someone passes a big law and it's like, oh yeah, you know, nobody can complain about this anymore in meetings, right? And what I thought was so fascinating through the kind of arc of the book is that even though there were all these moments where you know the kind of more socialist-minded people were fighting over you know who pays for the housing and what its particular financial structure is, and people who want to build more market-rate housing because they think you know scarcity alone is the enemy, right? Um, I inside of all those battles, I could still feel under the surface that ethos changing. That they had all kind of decided, well, we do want to build more housing. We do want to make a housing opportunity more equitable. Um, but but we have some disagreements about how we get there and about what sort of financial structure it has, right? And that is such a fundamentally like different place that we are, that, that, that their arguments were so fundamentally different than the argument 
between them and like, say, the kind of classic suburban NIMBY, who's like, I don't want anything anywhere. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted and produced by Will Compernal in Brooklyn, New York, with transcription assistance from Melissa Caceres. Our guest today was Connor Doherty of the New York Times. Any questions, comments, interested in obtaining Golden Gates? Email upsetpatterns at gmail.com. <laughs>